home in the autumn of 1459, the talking stops and the fighting begins. Well, it's rarely ever as simple as that, is it? Especially where people are concerned. But certainly this is the point at which battles seem to come along fairly frequently. My purpose in the coming podcasts is not to describe battle after battle in all its gory detail. I am more concerned with why the battles were fought and in particular what political impact they had. All I can hope to do is to provide the listener with a coherent overview that encourages the pursuit of further details elsewhere. As I've said before, the Wars of the Roses was most definitely not a single continuous event. Rather, it can be broken down into three separate, though related, political crises. You might see it as a series of historical novels, where some cast members are retained from one book to the next, but the stories are complete in themselves. We have now arrived at the first of these three crises, which lasted from 1459 to 1464. As you will recall, this crisis had been brewing for several years following the Battle of St Albans. As far as Queen Margaret, Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset and the Percys were concerned, it was payback time. York and his allies were on the defensive, and hastily trying to gather enough military might to balance that of the king. One of the features of the Wars of the Roses that fascinates the student of history is the way in which the fortunes of the two sides rose and fell. It's almost as if some wicked puppet master was controlling events so that one moment York was triumphant and the next he was utterly lost. Thus it was during the 1450s, when so many times the Duke of York thought he had achieved a position of dominance, only to find that he really hadn't. The prime reason for the ups and downs of the 1450s was unquestionably the limited managerial skills of King Henry VI himself. Nevertheless, once war broke out at the end of the decade, one could hardly blame the King for the continuing fluctuation in fortunes. At the time, of course, such things were often put down to the somewhat mysterious will of God, but I prefer to see it as the random consequences of several quite different factors. The unpredictability of battle, bad luck, even bad weather, but mostly the fickle loyalties of ambitious men. In the late summer and autumn of 1459, no one was sure exactly what was happening. Most folk were probably not expecting that there would be more than the odd skirmish, an upgraded version of St Albans, perhaps. Certainly very few would have wanted an all-out war against the king, because, and this is vital for us to grasp, hardly anyone actually wanted to fight against Henry VI. But loyalties were conflicted. Bear in mind that if, say, you were a knight who owed allegiance to the Earl of Salisbury, and you were summoned with thousands of others to his stronghold of Middleham Castle in Yorkshire, you did not know at that point that you would have to fight against the king himself, to whom you also owed allegiance. 
It was one thing to take up arms to support your lord against another lord's men, but it was a whole other thing to fight against an army flying the royal standard and led by your king in person. It required a fundamental change of mindset, and it also required some hefty justification. The importance of this conflict of loyalties was amply demonstrated when the forces of York joined together in 1459 at Ludlow. York's allies followed different paths to reach Ludlow. The Earl of Salisbury had to dodge past Queen Margaret's army and fight off another royal army at Bloor Heath. Indeed, he was lucky to get through at all. Here we have an early example of how fluid alliances were during this period. Lord Thomas Stanley, a name to remember, was a growing power in Cheshire and the northwest of England. But from the start, he gained a reputation for sitting on the fence. With his brother, William Stanley, he often had the power to intervene on one side or the other, but only rarely did he ever commit himself. What happened in September 1459 in the West Midlands is the first example of his duplicity. On the one hand, he was sending assurances to Queen Margaret that he was on his way to help prevent the Earl of Salisbury from reaching the other Yorkists in Ludlow. While, in fact, his brother actually joined forces with Salisbury on the way. Much more will be said about the Stanley brothers later on. But this episode set the pattern for their actions throughout the period. Salisbury eventually reached Ludlow but lost men at the Battle of Bloor Heath, about which we know very little except the Royal Commander Lord Audley was killed and at some point in the aftermath two of Salisbury's sons were captured amongst others. Warwick arrived from Calais in rather better shape with half the garrison led by one of the most capable and respected soldiers of the day, Andrew Trollope. Now there was a man to have with you in the tightest of corners. Early in October 1459 then, Richard Duke of York camped at Ludlow with his two teenage sons, Edward and Edmund, and with his allies, the two Neville Earls. He drew up his combined force south of the town, just beyond Ludford Bridge, with the river team at his back. His defences, including his cannon, faced his opponents to the south. A full-scale royal army boasting a very generous sprinkling of peers and with the king and queen at its head. It's difficult to believe that York really thought this would be St Albans Mark II. He had tried a show of force several times to get his way with the king and each time his moment of success had been short-lived. This time, as so often before, York wrote to the king to explain his warlike actions. He was loyal, he had been provoked by his enemies, he only wanted good government, etc, etc, etc. Henry must surely have wearied of such letters by now, but being a most forgiving man, he offered a pardon to all those willing to lay down their arms except those responsible for the death of Lord Audley at Bloor Heath. One imagines that this single condition 
might have been intended as something of a catch-all for the ringleaders, because I can't imagine that Henry's leading advisers, especially the Queen, intended York and his cronies to escape with their lives. York knew that many of his soldiers would be reluctant to fight their king, so rumours were spread among his soldiers that Henry VI was dead, and, in a nice touch, masses were even sung for his soul. One of the aspects of the wars which I find especially impressive is the depth of loyalty to Henry VI. Few of his subjects saw him as an effective leader, yet they were prepared to fight and die for him anyway. Well, the proof is in what happened next. Andrew Trollope, soldier extraordinaire, took his Calais garrison, the steel backbone of York's army, and defected overnight to the king. York saw that he could not win a military engagement without them, and the following night, expecting further desertions, he and the other leaders fled, abandoning their cannon and leaving their confused men to make their own peace with the king. The duke also left behind his duchess, Cecily, and his two youngest sons, George and Richard. The poor old town of Ludlow was ransacked by the jubilant Lancastrian soldiers who had won a victory with hardly any fighting. They pretty much drank the town dry, and it took years for Ludlow to recover from the beating it took in 1459. York and his son Edmund fled to Ireland, while his eldest son, Edward Earl of March, hurried away with Warwick and Salisbury to Calais. All the leaders escaped with their lives, but precious little else. They had abandoned everyone and everything, including their honour. On the 20th of November, Parliament met at Coventry. Notice that London is once again avoided as being too supportive of York. This was the first Parliament since York's second and short-lived protectorate in 1456. Though there were some anomalies in the elections, the Parliament was only really called for one reason, and that is pretty clear from the name it was later given from the Yorkist perspective. The Parliament of Devils. Well, the Parliament of Devils passed an act of attainder condemning York and his leading supporters. For those who aren't sure about attainder, it was a process whereby Parliament passed an act which basically said that someone was a traitor. It condemned them without trial or much in the way of evidence and ordered the confiscation of their lands. It was therefore a blunt political weapon of the government, but it carried the force of law. It could, though, of course, like any Act of Parliament, be reversed by a subsequent Parliament. In any case, by the end of 1459, York and his few allies were abroad and attainted. Now, a casual observer of the period might assume that since the Queen now controlled the government and the Yorkists had fled, the matter was settled. But of course, you've been paying attention, so you will know that as long as York was alive, there could be no peace. <laughs>